Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. And on this week's menu, we have an especially spicy entree to serve you. Veteran feminist activist, author, and pundit, Julie Bindle. As you'll hear, Julie and I very much see eye to eye on a lot of issues, such as the reality of sexual dimorphism that separates men from women, a separation that doesn't vanish when a person adopts new pronouns. But as recently as a few years ago, I really wouldn't have imagined Julie and I being ideological allies. As you'll hear on the show, I began my journalistic career at a conservative media outlet, Canada's National Post newspaper, where my colleagues and I often took a skeptical view toward feminists of the Bendelian persuasion. But in recent years, the progressive campaign to pretend away the reality of biological sex has become so extreme that it has united in opposition a lot of different formerly squabbling political factions, including conservatives, traditional feminists, such as Julie, and people like me, who are pretty much just boring centrist liberals who don't like to see the science of human biology misrepresented in the public sphere so that trans-identified men can have access to women's sports, private spaces, and lesbian dating apps. This is a war that Julie has been fighting for two decades, since at least 2004 when she wrote a widely read column titled Gender Benders Beware in The Guardian, marking her as years ahead of her time in warning the world about this phenomenon. Last month, she and I had breakfast here in Toronto while she was visiting from England, and I enjoyed the conversation so much that I invited her to come to our studios so we could continue the discussion for the benefit of Quillette podcast listeners. Here's a recording of that conversation. Julie, you're here in Toronto, out in the provinces, as it were, to do research for a book. Is that right? That's right. It's a book on lesbians, and its working title is Lesbians. So if anyone can think about a great subtitle for me, I'm listening. Well, attention spans are low, so it's good if titles, you know, get right to the point. That is quite brief, though. You think you're going to get pushback from your publisher when you propose that? Well, the publisher's very keen on it, and bearing in mind that the only book titles, including the term lesbian these days, seem to be about anything but, or some kind of derivative of lesbian porn, then, you know, it might be quite refreshing. And my last book, Feminism for Women, which came out a couple of years ago, that focused on how the term feminist has been so bastardised and its meaning rendered just completely ridiculously Orwellian because intersectionality has been misappropriated. Now, an inclusive feminism has come to mean a feminism that includes men and an inclusive lesbianism means a lesbianism that includes women with penises, which of course don't exist. But any publisher that buys my book, you know, they're going to be knowing what they're getting and they know that I'm not going to be floundering around trying to appease people that have got absolutely no clue what lesbian liberation or lesbian politics is. And, you know, I've had enough experience of publishers shaking my hand on a deal before then being bullied out of the deal by young blue fringed intersectionals in the office to understand that now if somebody's interested in buying my book, 
they know exactly what they've got to put up with when they go into the meeting with the young progressives that think that they own the world. We had a version of that here in Canada a couple of years ago, which was by turns unsettling and extremely hilarious, where Jordan Peterson's book publisher here in Toronto, Penguin Random House, and I don't presume to know what you think about Jordan Peterson. It doesn't matter for, for these purposes. But I think at the time, Jordan Peterson had already made the publisher something like $30 million, and they were publishing his second book. Everybody in the corner offices was quite thrilled because it's a business. Uh, and then, yeah, you had, I know from an insider, younger, more militantly progressive cadres in junior positions who literally went into maudlin hysterics at a kind of town hall meeting on Zoom. It's always like a huge mistake to do these town hall meetings on Zoom because they always get hijacked by the most effusive and self-pitying members of the organization. Is that what you're worried about when this book is set in galleys? That won't happen with this publisher's. It's Swift Press. They published a number of books that had been rejected from other publishing houses, despite the fact that the author was well-known, has done well with previous book sales. Swift Press publishes a wide range of topics and doesn't shy away from it. And actually what happened with my Feminism for Women book was that about two or three women who were really keen to buy it and took me and my agent out for dinner or for lunch or for drinks. And as I say, shook hands on it and were saying, I'm so excited. They were very easily bullied out of that. And at the same time, were signing off writers who were trans writers who would sell about 600 copies, as it turned out, who couldn't really write, with an exception of maybe one or two. And so they were foregoing books that would make money for them. I mean, not the same amount of money as Jordan Peterson, obviously, in order to capitulate to these social justice warriors. And it was amazing to me because it actually took a man who worked at Little Brown, who asked my agent if he could read my proposal. He bought the book. And when he was told by one of the young people in the office that she would be requiring time off for trauma. And she said, I'll need counselling. I can't bear working at this place if we're going to be handling Bindle's book. And he said to her, well, what I would suggest is that you get yourself some counselling and get over it. It's quite telling that it took a man to do that. And I think it's because obviously, with one or two exceptions, Men are usually left alone in the gender war, in the massive misogynistic tidal wave of identity politics that we're living under that sees women like me attack for our work and our very being. And men tend to get away with way more. They're coming after the women because this is effectively a men's rights movement. Could it just be that men are more decisive and we master our strong emotions? No, I think that <laughs> I think that they get bullied less. And obviously, women are the foot soldiers and often the lieutenants. And many women are instigating this witch hunt against older feminists, older lesbians. And because they don't know history anymore, they don't understand feminist history, and they're now taught gender studies. So they worship at the altar of Judith Butler and they therefore go through life having learned nothing whatsoever about the rights that they are very happy to give away. I had been a feminist for a very long time by 2004 when I first wrote about the trans issue and got into trouble. Primordial times in the gender way universe. I had already been a feminist since 
the very end of the 70s, when I was 17 years old, I met the women that were very uncompromising, working to end male violence, spoke extremely plainly, uh, were very tough and firm, and great humoured women. And I learned at their knees. And by the time it got to 2004, nothing surprised me in terms of the way that misogyny presents itself in all its diverse beauty. What actually did surprise me when they came after me 20 years ago was that the liberals went along with them. That was deeply disappointing. They seemed to buy the lie that this was like the lesbian and gay liberation movement, that trans rights were akin to that, and that these awful women, who, myself included, there weren't that many women publicly speaking about this at the time from a feminist point of view, that we had turned from human rights activists, left-wing feminists, who had spent their life campaigning for, want of a better phrase, a better world, suddenly became right-wing Nazis. We were like Hitler. You'll notice there's never, ever a mid-range dictator that's brought in at this stage. Yeah, I have a problem with that because sometimes I think, well, can we plea bargain this woman down to Mussolini or something? I mean, you know, there are plenty out there, but it goes straight to Hitler. And so nobody started to ask the questions. Well, if Bindle and Janice Raymond, who wrote the very first feminist treaty on transsexual ideology, as it was known then... Why, when these women have campaigned to end trafficking, the medical abuse of women and girls, why all of a sudden have they turned into bigots? These women are left-wing lesbians. It was just bought by the liberals. They were very hard of thinking, and they let it roll. And of course, once that happened, once the liberals decided to denounce the likes of me, we were pretty much done for in terms of fighting against it. Yeah, until now, because I, I get the sense the tide has been turning the last year or two, which is a problem for me because I'm sort of a natural contrarian, so I may have to switch sides. <laughs> but let me ask you something, because I think class plays a role in this. As I mentioned in the intro, you and I had this informal breakfast a couple of days ago, and I learned a little bit about your background. It's probably something your regular readers know, but you didn't exactly grow up with a silver spoon in your mouth. And I know maybe British listeners can kind of tell a lot by British accents, what kind of... Speaking as a North American, whenever I hear a British accent, I assume you grew up in Downton Abbey. <laughs> but I'm curious if that contributes to your instinct to call bullshit on ideological developments in your field of activism that, that you just recognize as nonsense. Because higher education or people who grew up in a kind of country club atmosphere, the rule is, well, you know, don't say anything that other people in the country club are going to find impolite. And they become maybe sometimes a little bit more orthodox and slavish in the way they follow these ideological trends? Well, there's lots to say about class, and you're absolutely right to raise it, because this is an upper-class, highly privileged debate. I mean, it's an Ivy League campus type thing. Oh, God, yeah. And, and not just students, academic staff. I mean, we mentioned Judith Butler earlier. She really exemplifies all that is wrong. She says that gender is performity. Oh, okay. And that to the girls in menstrual huts in Nepal. But... Either way, class is really pertinent for several reasons. First of all, if I'd grown up in Downton Abbey, I would be the servant. <laughs> I mean, we had no money. We lived on a in social housing on an estate where we had been moved from a house without an indoor lavatory to a house that was thin-walled, three-room council, social housing, as we call it. And my dad was a union representative. He worked in a factory. My mum worked in a store. None of the people where I grew up 
in that area could give a damn about gender identity. They want to feed their kids. They're happy if their kids come out as lesbian or gay. The white families are very happy to see racial integration and many have mixed race relatives and grandkids. They're not bigots. But, you know, the thing about about material reality is that it matters if you are poor. It matters if you're a woman who's been raped and it matters if you're black and you've been kicked out of your house or your job because of direct racial discrimination. And that's when it hits you in the face. But then having said that, you've got many women who've bought into this ideology. You've got many black women and men that have bought into this. They tend to be upper class. And so you can transcend your class background, or you can sometimes transcend your racial identity by buying into a set of ideologies that gives you a nice tick against your name. So for example, If you say trans women are women, you're also going to say sex work is work because they're never going to be in a brothel. Their daughter's never going to be in a brothel. You're also saying from the river to the sea, you think Hamas uniforms are sexy. Tick box, tick box, tick box all the way through. And when I think you've grown up in in a background that I have and then moved through to the kind of media professional world, you know, I live with, my partner is from an upper middle class background Oxbridge educated. So I've seen both sides of that world. I now live a very privileged middle class lifestyle compared to it. But you don't ever forget the hand to mouth existence that people have and how these highfalutin pointless ideologies are harmful to those with the least resources. You can't resist it. When people talk about intersectional feminism, they seem to leave out the feminism part and it (laughs) just becomes kind of like a hectoring diatribe about related issues. But it always helps to give the other side their due. And when it comes to, call it intersectionality, I think it's important to concede that if you're a woman, you face challenges associated with being a woman. If you're black, you face challenges associated with being black. It's hardly crazy. In fact, it's kind of common sense to just say that a person who's a black woman faces both of those challenges. Right. Which kind of, to me, is the common sense version of intersectionality. When Kimberly Crenshaw termed the phrase intersectionality, she meant she used the example, she's a legal scholar, a feminist, and she used the example of a black woman um, in a law firm. And it was very, very clear how those oppressions intersect and build each other up. So you're not just oppressed singularly for, for your sex as a woman, and then for your race as a woman, it's about being a black woman within the society. And it it really made sense and it makes sense now. Well, the other thing that's happened, I wonder if there'll be a chapter in your book about this, the metastasizing of an LGB identity, and I guess a trans identity to this more nebulous thing called being queer. I've had some podcast guests in the LGB community, their eyes roll to the back of their sockets when people talk about the queer community. If somebody wants to call themselves queer, up to them, nothing to do with me. Don't ever call me queer, I would say to them, ever, ever. And I'll tell you how the term has changed. It was a term of abuse. I think it's still a term of abuse. And I was called queer when I was at school and I was accused of being, as they charmingly put it, a kiddie fiddler because we were all tarred with that brush. I wasn't allowed to babysit other people's kids. Really? Yeah. And I was 15 years old and it felt hellish to be seen in that way. And queer was a word that came up again and again. Then queer changed in the early 90s after many gay men became politicized through the AIDS crisis and responding to the horrendous anti-gay prejudice and treatment of those men 
it was off the scale as it was in North America, as it was everywhere, and gay men were demonized. Some of those men adopted the word queer as a term of, well, they reclaimed it. And they said, we won't ever let them use this against us again. We're reclaiming it. Now, their business, their choice. But then another change came, which is the ever-expanding alphabet soup, the unbreakable Wi-Fi code of LGBTQQIA, Two Spirit Plus. What changed again about queer is that it started to include straight men, for example, who got a kick from strangling women to a state of unconsciousness during sex or being foot fetishists. Polyamory, so that makes you queer if you're a man who is simultaneously shagging for women or just having an interesting haircut. So we're now forced into a group, which many of us refuse to join, which includes queer, which in and of itself includes straight kinkster men or straight women who once kissed a girl who now lives in a heterosexual marriage with kids. I think this was in the United States that the majority of young Americans now self-identify as queer. The largest group are monogamous heterosexual women. So conservatives will be very cynical about this and say, oh, these people just want to check intersectional boxes. Here in Canada, maybe there's more currency to that because certainly in the arts community, you know, if you want to get a grant or a CBC show, very hard to fake being black, hard to fake being indigenous, although many have tried it. but once you go down that alphabet soup stuff, no one's asking questions. Well, you don't have to even fake being queer because queer is meaningless, which is the other cue in the long acronym, which is questioning. So all you have to do is wake up one day and think, I wonder what it would be like to snog Who a girl. among us has not been questioning at one point? I would hope everyone. But the point is, it's been rendered so meaningless that you don't even have to pretend because the term queer has no substance whatsoever. So if you apply for a grant from the Arts Council back in the UK, and you say you're a queer arts theatre, they're not going to say, show us how. Because queer also means lesbians and gay men. They might assume it means that you're same-sex attracted. Well, often it doesn't. I really dislike the word. Very, very strongly dislike it. And I remember one young male social justice warrior who writes for the Liberal newspaper in the UK and who is just shrills for trans rights. Trans women are women, he'll say. First time I met him, he said to me, oh, really pleased to meet you. I don't know why we're debating each other on this program, because we're both on the left, true, and we're both LGBTQ. And I said, I'm not all of those things. I've got no time to be all of those things. So now we're actually being labelled as LGBTQ as an individual. I think the term I've heard is forced teaming. There were people complaining they were LGB. They were kind of forced to go in for the grab bag of everything else. And and then you have kind of dissident strain within the transgender rights community. We've had one or two on the show, uh, people who, who have gender dysphoria, uh, but they call themselves transsexual, yeah. because that's a label they use to indicate that they, they don't believe the anti-scientific idea that trans women are, are women, they're men who have gender yeah. dysphoria. Have you built bridges with, with those heterodox members of the trans community? Because one thing I like to emphasize Gender dysphoria is a real phenomenon. I mean, I know people with gender dysphoria. I know, and I know people who, who have told me bluntly, say, I have gender dysphoria. I know I'm biologically male. However, it makes me feel good, palliates my gender dysphoria to present as a woman. And I'd appreciate, you don't have to, but I'd appreciate if you use female identifiers for me. And ironically, when, when they ask like that, I'm much more inclined to do it. 
Have you built bridges with those dissident members of the trans community? Many a time, until no debate was imposed by the new wave of cool kids in the trans movement. A few months before I wrote Gender Benders Beware, I published a piece in the Sunday Telegraph magazine, which hinged on an interview I did with Claudia, old-style transsexual, who, and I will use preferred pronouns for Claudia, and I'll tell you why. I'm a friend of Claudia's, and when I go around to visit her, she presents entirely as the opposite sex. I know she's a man. She knows she's a man. She is respectful of women. She calls herself a transsexual, not a woman. She doesn't go with any of this pretense. And she gave me an interview about how she'd always regretted having a sex change, the term she used. And she did this in the 1980s when she was a young gay man because her then partner hated being gay and put her under pressure, well, put him under pressure to go through a sex change, which took 20 minutes in the psychiatrist's office before she was signed off for full hormones and surgery. So one sec. So the internalized homophobia of this person's partner led to what was essentially full-on medical conversion therapy. Yes, that's exactly right. Now, when I met Claudia in 2003, it was because I knew through a lawyer that had represented her that Claudia had been sexually assaulted very seriously when waiting for a train, so in a public space, reported it to the police. And as soon as the police discovered that Claudia was transsexual because they had to have you know, a medical doctor involved, police officers would come in, look at her, laugh and walk out. I mean, it really distressed me hearing about this. It's it's hideous. We can use the term transphobia. Oh, it's totally transphobic. I mean, I tend not to use the phobia word just because it's often not an irrational fear. As we know, it's often straightforward bigotry and cruelty. But even so, yeah, total transphobia. Now, I interviewed Claudia, who then told me, I've always regretted transitioning. I wish I could have been helped to live as a gay man in my own body. And she has complications through the surgery and the hormone treatment. However, Claudia is not going to transition back. She's not going to suddenly start living as a man. It would be impossible. But what happened when she spoke out in my article, and then when she came with me to events where I was trying to build bridges with old school transsexuals, is she was thrown out of her own community. They hated her for washing the dirty laundry in public. I have immense respect for Claudia. She's a game changer, and it cost her dearly. And I have tried to talk to many people that were then bullied out of speaking with me. I got a few debates in, respectful discussions with some trans people before the clampdown came from the new brigade. So I've tried and tried, and and I'm not just the only one that's tried. Let's talk a little bit about how things have changed, because I think two or three years ago, if we were having this discussion, and I have had similar discussions, which I guess are in our podcast archives, with people who just expressed despair that you couldn't say that two plus two equals four, isn't it the case now that you're starting to be able to say 2 plus 2 equals 4 after the, the Tavistock scandal in the UK? In the United States, the situation is very different because you have red states that are, in my mind, go way too far in their anti-trans stuff. And you have places like California, which kind of go in the opposite direction. But I think UK was the first to go in hard for this ideology, but it also seems to be the most advanced in terms of showing the world how you can kind of establish a glide path out of it. Do you take solace from the fact that, for instance, the current government 
in the UK has actually taken steps. You've seen a lot of sporting uh, organizations put down sensible decrees that say, no, I'm sorry, you know, just because you have female pronouns doesn't mean you can play rugby with people half your size. The battle, and does it feel half won to you? Yes. And what's at stake is women's safety when it comes to male violence. Now, when we set up women-only refuges, uh, rape crisis centres, demanded single-sex wards in hospitals, when we fought to introduce the Sex Discrimination Act, which shows that you can actually legally be a women-only employer or service or whatever, we did it not because we're shrinking violets that either hate men or would faint at the sight of a penis. And it's not because we think all men are potential rapists. It's because we know enough men are a danger to women that we need to keep all men out. Now, apart from a few hardline misogynists, men actually got that. They didn't come after us. They didn't burn down our refuges. I mean, some of the men whose wives were in there because they'd battered them were very angry. But in the main, society accepted that because enough of a significant minority of men sexually harass, rape, beat, violate women. This is all we're saying now about women-only spaces when it comes to trans women. We're saying we're not anti-trans. We don't want to keep trans people out. We want to keep men out. But they won't have that because unless we actually affirm them as women, then we're transphobic. So the women's movement focused on male violence. We can't have convicted rapists or sex offenders or just any man in a women's prison because she's in danger. And anyway, she'll feel in danger. And it's bad enough in prison as it is. Hospital wards, it's about dignity as well as safety. Yes, the battle's half won because we took a lot of legal cases. I've taken two legal cases and won both. And of course, it's 18 months of your life that you're never going to get back. So yeah, so as plaintiff, I sued a publication, Pink News, a misogynistic rag. (laughs) Yeah, Pink News. Okay. And I also sued with lawyers, Nottingham City Council, which is um, a local authority in England, that banned me from one of their public libraries to speak about male violence to a load of working class women at a library that was in danger of closing because trans activists battered them down when they saw my name on the programme. And they had no right to exclude me. It was sex discrimination. It was potentially defamatory of me. So we threatened to sue. We did all the letters before action stuff. They caved in and they issued an apology. And what's important is that they now can't do it to somebody else. There's a legal precedent. Same with Pink News. We settled in the end. They would be hard-pressed, I think, to defend another defamation, a serious defamation threat, because insurers get very nervous about this. And Pink News purports to be a broadband LGBT media service in the UK, but at least in recent years, it seems to be hardline trans rights, fairly misogynistic in tone. You know, it's run by wealthy gay men that see, in my view, the cash coming in. I mean, these organizations that were supposed to represent the whole, you know, every color of the rainbow just focused on trans because ultimately they thought that they'd won all the rights that we needed as lesbians and gay men. We've had gay marriage here in Canada for, I think, the better part of two decades. And then the idea is, well, People who are well-intentioned and who are looking for the next frontier in social justice activism, they were like, okay, well, the trans thing is new. Let's do that. There was a well-intentioned spirit behind it originally. Maybe. I mean, maybe with some, maybe the trans lobby 
had convinced them enough that they needed to forego any medical gatekeeping. What they do is they fight for self-identification for those that just describe being a woman because they have a feeling that they are. Unfettered self-identification where, like during the course of this interview, I I could just say, I'm a woman. Yes. And, and, and then you could trip down the road and go into a women's refuge and demand to be there. When I was in Vancouver a few years ago doing research for my book on prostitution, I was taken around the downtown east side, which, as you know, is a hellish neighborhood full of poverty, social deprivation of every type, where women are being pushed out of 10-story windows by their pimps. And this young indigenous woman, who herself was a sex trade survivor, took me around the neighborhood and was showing me the support services for young women trying to get out of the sex trade. And she pointed to one nice building and said, my aunt worked here and it was a great service. And I said, what happened? Does it close down? She said, no, no. But because of our laws on self-ID in Vancouver, the men that are homeless and have social problems themselves don't like the homeless hostel that they have been given down the road. This is much nicer. So just actual blokes just come in here and you walk in and see a couple of trans-identified men, a couple of trans women, and you just see blokes with beards just sat around the table. I think it's in Scotland, a rape crisis center. The new administrator, I guess it was a couple of years ago, the new administrator happened to be a biological male who identifies as a woman, a trans woman. This person went on record, I think, as saying that when women who've been raped come into our rape crisis center, it's a great opportunity to disabuse them of some of the myths they have about penises and stuff. Am I getting that right? Yes, you are. So I've forgotten this dude's name. But either way, he identifies as female and he runs a service in Edinburgh for women who've been raped and sexually assaulted. And he's the chief executive of that service. So in other words, the handmaidens, the women in that service, appointed a man. And this joker was on some podcast like The Guilty Feminist. And he was asked about the pushback that this rape crisis service had had from employing a man at the top of the tree. And he said, if women are traumatised about seeing a man or someone they perceive to be a man in a rape crisis centre, they need to reframe their trauma. Meaning, get over it, bitch. It's what women have been told forever. That if you are distressed or upset or traumatised, You've been raped, and all of a sudden some bloke appears. It's like, get over yourself. Am I right that this person is still the CEO of the service? It's shocking. But you know, something brilliant happened. Our fairy godmother appears, J.K. Rowling. So Joe Rowling, as everyone will know, said something extremely respectful and fair about how it's important to define women by biological sex and not gender identity, spoke about her own experiences of domestic and sexual violence in the past, and just became completely monstered. She was one of those left-wing philanthropist, human rights activists, feminists, who overnight became Hitler. And so you'll all know the story of this. By the way, I love the way you call her Joe Rowling, like she's your racquetball partner. She's my friend, and we've become friends. She's friends with many of us that have been in this fight because she really cares about fighting male violence and campaigning. And, and she's extremely funny. So when she comes back at some trans activist asking how she feels about her legacy, she just laughs at them and says, well, every time she looks at her royalty check, she feels fine about it. <laughs> anyway, so, she's, anyway, so she's, she's absolutely brilliant. And what she did was that she got really, really 
distressed at the idea that there are these women going into a rape crisis centre, seeing a man, knowing that there's no such thing anymore um, in Scotland as a single sex space for women who've been raped and sexually assaulted, including in their childhood, historically, as well as, as, as currently. And she thought, oh, I remember, I can do something about this. So she set up and funded Byra's Place, which is in Edinburgh, and it's single sex. And of course, it's heaving with women making inquiries to avail themselves of Byra's Place services, which is both a terrible story and a really good news one, because of course, we know women are raped. We know girls have been sexually abused. They need somewhere where they can feel safe. So Byra's Place is coming up at the beginning of December. It's coming up to its first anniversary. And also, they couldn't set it up as a charity because, as you might know, John, what happened to the LGB Alliance? Mermaids, which is an organisation that approves of the transgendering of children, Mermaids took them to court over their charitable status. LGB Alliance was taken to task and taken to court on the claim that it wasn't a true charity because it was a front for... Anti-trans activism. But I think maybe it was sometime earlier this year they, they won their case. Presumably it was expensive, though. It wasn't just expensive, it was distressing, it was time-consuming. It took them away from the job of advocating for same-sex-attracted people, so lesbians, gay men, bisexuals, and it was um, the, the process is the punishment. As part of the movement to make gender supreme to biological sex in all milieus, the conceit was advanced that we're not actually attracted to female or male bodies. We have a writer at Quillette, his name is Alan Stratton, he's a well-known Canadian author. I think I connected you with him. And we had a really great chat yesterday. He's written for Quillette about how he believes this conceit that I just described is essentially homophobic because it denies an existential component of the gay identity. It's like, as a gay man, I mean, it's not the only thing that makes him who he is, but it's one of the things is that he's attracted to male bodies instead of female bodies. And someone comes along and says, no, 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 you're very confused, Alan. What you're really attracted to is the pronoun. The body is just kind of this thing that the pronoun drags along. It's deeply homophobic. It's deeply anti-lesbian. There was a time I was in court during some of the Mermaid's case against LGB Alliance some of Mermaid's witnesses were saying that some women have penises. And if you reject trans women from your dating pool, you are transphobic. So what they were telling us is it's same gender attraction and it's not same sex attraction. This is a tangent to a tangent. Where does the name Mermaid's come from? Because a mermaid to me is, is a crotchless creature. Right. It sets up a very unsettling <laughs> right. You know, you tell me, but all I will say is this, that the chief executive for some years before recently moving on, and some of us suspect it might have been because of the epic shit show that that case brought about exposing mermaids, and this is well documented, including by her, took her son to Thailand as soon as he was 16 to have him castrated. And, you know, you are talking about rendering young people, often kids, infertile and actually taking away the possibility that they'll ever have sexual pleasure in the future. So it's outrageous. But the mermaid thing, very creepy. When you talk about doing these irreversible medical procedures on, on kids, I, I just thought about this, this horrible case that was covered, of course, in a very loving way by the CBC. I think it was a nine-year-old 
who was being profiled. And it was like the full I am jazz treatment. Her family threw her party, then the town threw her party, then the unicorns pranced around, and there was seven days of rainbows. And But then when they interviewed the kid, and I can't believe CBC left this in the edit because it's such a damning thing. The kid said, assuring the reporter, and by extension the audience says, oh yes, you know, they told me about all these medical things that could happen, like I wouldn't be able to have kids. As a reader, I'm thinking, okay, well, at least they told the nine-year-old, the extent a nine-year-old can even understand that kind of thing. But then the kid said, and they left this in the article, said, but it doesn't matter because I'm going to be a famous actress and I won't have time to have kids. So that's the level of comprehension and the modeling of their future that is regarded as informed consent. I mean, it's utterly outrageous. And for many of us, we see clearly that what's happening at gender clinics is conversion therapy. Gender dysphoric young women, which is the highest rising group in Canada and in the UK, present at gender clinics saying, I'm unhappy with my body. Tell me what teenage girl isn't, right? And they're usually not something like, I can't remember, it's in Hannah Barnes's book, Time to Think. The vast majority are same-sex attracted. One thing I'd, I'd like to talk about, because I think maybe people who've learned your name and, and your, your work recently might think you know, your whole career you focused on this stuff. You've done a ton of other things. You mentioned conversion therapy. Am I right that you went to the United States kind of undercover to experience real homophobic conversion therapy where they're trying to turn gay people straight? Yeah, a few years ago, I was writing a book on lesbian and gay culture and politics. I decided that I would go through the whole kind of treatment. So I tracked one down that specializes in lesbians, because there is one. And it was in a small Christian town, very near Columbine, Colorado. And I adopted a persona of Joanne, who had been thrown out of her family when she was a teenager and her church. And she was Christian and all of her relationships had gone wrong. And basically, you know, she was thinking that maybe, you know, she's in her 50s. She really needs to think about settling down and having a real relationship and getting back with her parents before they die, before it's too late. And, oh, they lapped me up. We had Skype calls before I made the trip over there. It was going to be intensive therapy. So that's five days in a row, all day. They sent me a whole load of papers to sign to reassure them that I wasn't suicidal, that I didn't have serious mental health problems. I purposely left those questions unanswered to see if they did due diligence. They didn't. So they never knew whether or not I had serious mental health issues. And I stayed in a Christian hotel. And every day I would go and see Kelly, the therapist, and she would tell me how broken I was, how damaged I was, um, how my childhood had ruined me, how God still loves me, but I need to do right by God. Um, I heard tell of my ancestors who wanted me to get fixed again. I was told my mother abused me. My father neglected me. I mean, everything that you can think of that can go wrong in a childhood, she just scattergunned all these possibilities out. And I had thought to myself before I went that I would be Jeanette Winterson, the writer, the lesbian writer, who wrote Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, where we see her mother, Mrs. Winterson, who's a bit monstrous. And I thought, if I just think of my mother as, as Mrs. Winterson, it won't bring me back to thinking that she's attacking my mother because, you know, nobody attacks my mother, basically. 
And it kind of worked, but it was also deeply distressing because no one's childhood is perfect. Everybody has doubts about themselves and about who we are, especially when we've experienced anti-lesbian bigotry and prejudice, which I have, and I've been beaten up and lost jobs for it and sexually assaulted. Yeah, it really uh, did have an effect on me, but it had a particular effect, I think, because I met some of the people sent to actual Christian conversion therapy in real life when they were teenagers by their parents. And they gave me some strength and a bit of courage because I thought, well, if they've survived it, I'm damn sure I can. You know, going back to my hotel room at night, drinking gin and watching Netflix, I'd met the survivors of this process. I had to kind of do some serious prepping. I had a friend round because I, I, I wasn't raised a Christian. I had to have a friend round who was raised as a Christian who told me what the Lord's Prayer was. I'm Jewish. I know what the Lord's Prayer is. Well, yeah, but I had a bad schooling. You're not only a bad Christian, you're a bad lapsed Christian. <laughs> a really terrible. But, you know, when I had to tell the therapist when I got home, that was the worst bit of it, actually, in a way. She possibly was doing this because she truly believed that we would be saved. Believing Christians are some of the best people I know. I agree. When I go work at a food bank, in terms of the stuff they do that isn't about private morality. They do anti-trafficking work. Foster parents, food banks. And so for me, it would be just very tough to undermine kindly old people who they think they're saving you. Thankfully, she wasn't elderly. She was well-paid, had good standing in the community, had done some terrible things to women who'd escaped unhappy marriages that just wanted to be together. And they were kind of forced apart and put through this boot camp. I still felt bad because actually lying to people and sneaking around. We're trained not to do that. We're trained not to do that. And it was hard. But yeah, I felt bad when I told her about it. I know you have to go. So I've got two questions. I'm going to ask them quickly. You came to Canada in part because... We're like kind of the poster child internationally for what happens when a government just gets captured by the most militant men's rights strain of the yes. trans rights movement. Is that Justin Trudeau's international brand now? That is absolutely right. Uh, we call this country Tranada. And <laughs> what I'm hearing from lesbians in particular is they're not now allowed to meet uh, separately from men, that if they put on an event, women only, they'd be picketed, they'd be bullied, they would be possibly attacked. We've seen what happened in Vancouver with rape relief there, where they've had rats nailed to their doors, public funding cut for refusing to allow men into this women-only space. And ironically, by the way, Trudeau came to power, his big brand was as a feminist. Yeah, and he's anything but. Well, he's an intersectional one, isn't he? You know, he was given a good kicking for, for wearing blackface, and nobody looks at the fact that these men are wearing woman face and insisting that we roll over and give all our rights away. Tranada is one of the worst places on the planet for this ideology. And lesbians are telling me they can't organise separately from men. But I have to say, though, that much as it's depressing what's happening here, meeting the lesbians that are finding ways to fight back and finding ways to organise together, feels like, oh my God, this again, 50 years later, but good for them. So I've met the best of lesbians here. Absolute last question. I know you have to go. There are people who, when I mention your name, it's like, really? You're going to have her on the, the podcast? And they all harken back to some pissing match from 20 years ago, maybe when your brand was more like anti-men and militant feminist. And I've told you, I started my journalistic career at a conservative newspaper back in the late 90s, and we were always banging on about militant feminists. Times have changed. Now I'm just egging feminists 
to be more militant because I kind of like what you're doing on the gender wang file. But do you still get people who, even though you have common interests, common inclinations, are like, no, I'm not going to work with Julie because of that thing she said about me 25 years ago? They're welcome to come and chat to me anytime. They'll see I'm not a kind of man-hating bigot. If I make jokes about, you know, if men can't behave themselves, let's put them all in an enclosed holiday camp and give them quad bikes to ride. And they interpret it as serious and they turn that into concentration camp. No, they don't. Concentration camps don't have bikes. When I make a joke that's misinterpreted, it's willful misinterpretation. Well, you're funny. I mean, this is one thing I learned about you is you balance your militancy with your humor, which I don't know how you do. That's a very fine line to walk. Have feminists gotten funnier as a result of the struggle that we're talking about simply because the enemy is so much more ludicrous? Well, that's a good that's a good question. We've always been funny, but my God, do we have some material coming in from this gender woo-woo. Problem is, it's now gone beyond parody. Julie Bindle is an author, and she also tweets, or X's if you prefer, at Bindle J. Julie, thanks so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette Podcast. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. 